And so that time begins again. How many of you have been to the mall with your significant other? Let me ask you a question. How can you tell a single man from a married man in a department store? That's right. The married guy's holding the purse standing in the hallway outside the store, right? In my experience, Sharon loves to shop, and I personally hate shopping. My confession, why is that? Well, my answer is I believe that women are gatherers and men are simply hunters. That's how we do it. Now let me explain so I don't get myself in trouble, especially with my wife. It's too late, yeah. Oops, I just spit my gum out on the floor. Awesome. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> See, if I don't have something in my mouth and I start coughing again, everybody thinks I have COVID and it's just not cool. So anyway... Shopping. See, my wife can go shopping at the end of the day. At the end of the evening, she'll say, hey, let's go shopping. Now, most of you men will be terrified when you hear that invitation, but not me. Because we can actually go shopping and walk out and not buy a thing. Hallelujah. <laughs> right? And uh, then she'll even go so far as to say, Thank you, I just had a great time being and spending time with you. Double hallelujah, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled about that. However, what I've noticed in my 33 and a half years of marriage is that she has to look at every item on the rack, even if there is absolutely no possibility that she will buy it. And that's why she needs two hands. And that's why I have to hold her purse. Now, I do think that my wife has a subconscious goal to touch every piece of clothing her size in the store twice. That's just part of what she does. But for me, I usually just look at an item that I may possibly want to buy. Why do I look at it, you may ask? Well, especially if I don't need it, right? Because that's what I do. But you'll never know when you need it. That's so important. And when that day comes, I go on a hunt. I hunt. I remember where it was. I go into that store. I have an unusual fixed gaze upon my face. I go exactly to where I saw it before. My goal is find it, buy it, then proceed home as soon as possible. With the exception of Home Depot where I get lost. Today we're going to look into our scripture. And we're going to see some men called magi seeking out a king. And ultimately they, they find who they're looking for, which is Jesus. And they give him gifts from their shopping spree, so to speak. Those gifts were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The old joke is, is if the Magi were women, they would have brought more practical gifts at the time. But gold, frankincense, and myrrh turns out to be very practical because they're full of hope. Because God never, never leaves us without hope. And so as we prepare to walk through our passage this morning, I want to try to retell this story in modern day terms. That maybe we can sort of figure it out. And I think that the story of the Magi actually has some very extremely important dimensions that are scarcely looked at or spoken of as they should be, especially for 2021. So let's begin. Imagine that you're told that Jesus has arrived in Canada. <laughs> Where would you expect him to set up base, so to speak, for his ministry? Think about that. Where would you expect Jesus to set up base for his ministry? Uh, where would you hope to find King Jesus as his arrival is officially announced by the CBC? Secondly, imagine with me if you can, that his actual followers were the ones that were actually announcing to everybody else that this special revelation indeed did come. Who would you expect his followers to be? Or who would you hope these followers would be? Now again, I think the answer to those two questions would tell us a lot about your own understanding of who Jesus is and who the church is. But our text today is found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to read from the ESV, which is a different version than I usually use on a Sunday. But Matthew wait, wastes no time telling his story. He goes right into it. And he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of, king, of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So I think one of the things we have to look at is that we have to take a look at the three details that were given to us in chronological order. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king. Magi, or wise men, as the ESV says, uh, from the east came to Herod the king to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. And they were following a star that they claimed belonged to a new king of the Jews who was just born. And they came specifically to worship this king. So let's start with Jesus, the savior of the world, being born in Bethlehem. Now, for us today, some 2,000 years later, Bethlehem seems to be important. But for those living in Israel during the first century, it was more like Boulder, Manitoba. All right, you with me? A tiny town that has no significance other than being the birthplace of a now antiquated famous hockey player by the name of Tom, the Boulder Basher Johnson of the Montreal Canadiens. In 1958 to 1959, he won the Norris Trophy as the NHL's most outstanding defenseman, and nobody else from this province can make that claim to this day. It's about the only thing that Boulder has going for it today. It's the only thing, I, whenever I go off to the lake, that I always see Tom Johnson's sign as I drive through Boulder. That's it. Right? Now that's Bethlehem. As King David was, was born in Bethlehem, he was about a thousand years prior to Jesus' birth. That's the only thing, really, that Bethlehem had for it. David. Archaeologists think that Bethlehem was probably, uh, in Jesus' day, was about the size of a Walmart parking lot. However, this little town, if you were a very careful reader of the Jewish scriptures, you, you may be quietly expecting something more from this shabby little town called Bethlehem. Secondly, these magi showed up to Jerusalem, even though it says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And here's what we learn of the first details of our strange and mysterious visitors. They got one thing right. The king of the Jews had been born. And logically speaking, they, they went to the famous royal urban city. That's what they did. They went to Jerusalem, where all the kings lived, where they died, where they were buried in Israel's past. They went looking for this newborn king in Jerusalem. Maybe they were expecting and maybe just hoping for a political king to rule, to reign Jerusalem once again. Somebody better than Herod. And thirdly, as these foreigners showed up, they... they in the wrong place looking for the king. Like, who were they anyhow? Who are these guys? Our, our scripture from the ESV said that they were wise men, but that's the traditional interpretation. It literally should read magi. And the magi were a well-known professional uh, profession in Eastern uh, nations at the time. And they, they were trained to read, to understand, to interpret signs, the constellations, the stars, Things found in the sky. They were probably educated in the wisdom of the Babylonians and the Persians at the time. They, they would have also studied the ancient Hebrew scriptures, specifically that of Daniel, with its messianic prophecies. And at that time, the astrological signs were always being equated with rulers. They would see a star. They would know that a great king has been born somewhere. And so these astrologers, astronomers, whatever you want to call them, these magi who were the best who lived in the East, mostly likely Arabia, Persia, possibly Iranian. We don't know precisely where, but what we do know is that they saw a star and they went to investigate it because it was that profound. What we also know about these Magi is that they, they were unexpected visitors showing up in Jerusalem looking for a newborn king. Even more bizarre was that they were following apparently a supernatural moving star. Now, we don't know what their religion was. Some think it was an ancient form of Zoroastrianism. But God decided to use their own somewhat pagan methods of seeking signs in the stars of these divine realities to reveal to them the true king that had been born. And by gauging the details of the story that we look at in Matthew, we can guess that these magi, upon their misdirected arrival to Jerusalem, might have been probably tra traveling for one to, for sure, at least two years. 
And again, you've got to think about it. If they're traveling that long, that's going to be an expensive journey. And it would not involve only just three magi, but probably a much larger group. Now, don't read more into the text than that's there. The number of the magi is never stated. Tradition says three because of the three gifts that were, represent the three kings. And it's significant that these kings, these, these magi, are pagans. Pagans who know where Christ is born. And the response to all of this is mind-blowing because they've come to pay homage. They've come to worship. This reveals that they were looking, they go to Jerusalem, it reveals that they're looking for something, possibly, like I said, a political king, a, ki a king with kingly authority like David or maybe another powerful king that we find in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament, but they were sort of wrong. They initially missed him because they were looking for him in what they felt was the right place. But it was actually the wrong place. Matthew continues right. He says that when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where is the Christ, where the Christ was to be born? They told him. So his scribes, his scholars, his theologians say to Herod in Bethlehem of Judea. For it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For you, uh, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So naturally, Herod's in, he's, a, he's, a, he's troubled because his job's on the line. But what I find so interesting is that all the local religious leaders know the theory of the where and the why of the Messiah to be born. But they know less than what these pagans do who have just arrived on the scene. Maybe they're afraid of Herod. You know, but if this new king would end Herod's reign, at least maybe in secret, they would act. They would form some sort of rebellion. But they don't. So what we have here in Herod's surrounding court are theologians, our priests, our wise people who know they know the scriptures. They said to him in Bethlehem, but they don't act. They know, but they don't act. And apparently, God doesn't fit in their mindset. A king would come into glory. There would be a great manifestation. Certainly, they couldn't miss this figure of the birth of a brand new king. But Jesus is just so ordinary. And I think that this is what Matthew's trying to get our attention at, is that God comes to us in the ordinary. If they could miss it, if they could miss it, maybe we miss it too. The fact of the matter is Herod acts out of self-preservation. He summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time their star appeared. You know, and then if we aren't already bewildered by some of these details of the story, it's in an almost humorous part of the story, these foreigners show up in the royal city of Jerusalem. They seek an audience of the current reigning king. And you got to think about it. This, this king, Herod the Great, is a tyrant. And they stand before him and say, Hey, hey, where's the king of the Jews? He was just born. Like, did you just have a baby? Right? We're here to worship the king. It's almost comical. We know they're looking for Jesus, but they're looking in the wrong place. And I think this is also one of the reasons why Matthew's very clear at calling Herod king. He wants us, the readers, he wants his readers to see the irony. Who's the king here? And Herod has his own agenda. He has no problem lying. He has no problem killing. If you know his history, kills his brothers, kills his wife. Eventually, he kills all the children under the age of two. He just takes care of business. Yeah, he believes that the gods control the stars, but he will try to beat them anyway, and he goes looking for the newborn king uh, when this passage is done. But you have to ask yourself the question as we read through this, where are we looking for Jesus right now? And I look at our nation, and I think our nation are looking for Jesus in the wrong place. Like the Magi, so many Christians are looking for Jesus to show up in the, the Jerusalem of our nation, Ottawa. Or if we look down south, they're looking for that to happen at the White House. And they imagine that this is where all of our prayers must be directed. 
This is where our hopes and our longings must be directed. And like the Magi, they are hoping for Jesus' kingly authority all over again to be found and to take root in the highest offices of all nations. If this has to happen, if we're to have any hope for the future. But meanwhile, in a Walmart parking lot-sized rural town, there's our king, King Jesus. He's actually in Boulder, Manitoba. Turns out he was born down the street from where famous Tom Johnson was born. It's not Ottawa. Boulder. You see, Jesus didn't come to be that kind of king. If you hear anything today, listen to me now. He did not come to be that kind of king. His kingship is actually subverting these expectations. Our king let himself be born in a feeding trough. Think about that for a moment. The day before his birth, farm animals are literally eating out of a crib in which the infant Jesus would sleep. Somewhere that no one in our nation would want their baby sleeping. Have you ever seen horses or sheep or goats eat? Would you want your baby sleeping in that? Right? There's, it's gross. It's sloppy. There's spit. There's chewed food. Everything's falling back, wildly munching. It's gross what they're eating and how they eat. And it smells bad. I wouldn't want to put my baby in such a thing. But this is our king. And he's trying to show us that he's, he's going to be a different kind of king. A king that will subvert the authority of scriptures. A structure, sorry, of this world. By being the opposite of what we expect him to be. And we must allow the story of Jesus as told in all nations over the world. Wherever Christians are gathered. We must allow our values that we ascribe to our Christian life to be reflected of Jesus and his own story. He came in humbly. And so we have these Eastern astrologers who are following a star. They show up in Jerusalem. They approach the king, asking where the new king is. These men are not just astrologers. They were wise, as were said here. They represent this inner dynamic of religion towards self-transcendence, if I could put it that way, which involves this search for truth. They're searching for something, a search for the true God. And so far, this isn't such a crazy story, is it? Well, no, it is. It is. And I love it because when we look at this story, the birth, there's no other parallel in Scripture. And what we find is that these wise men, these wise men found hope in God's guidance. We read that they saw and they followed a star. It's actually a matter of historical record that a star appeared on the first time in what is called the first decan of the constellation of Virgo. You can do your own research on that. What we do know is this, is that uh, the, the Persians, the Egyptians, and the Chinese all recorded this event. The star first appeared, Jesus was born, and regardless of whether God used an existing astronomical phenomenon or he created one for the occasion, it had a supernatural purpose that God was actually guiding the wise men in a very special way, and they were curious. They were curious to find out where it was leading. And it was, like I said earlier, it was a common practice in those days to link these astronomical happenings with the birth of great men. And so the, the Magi were hoping to find, hoping, hoping to find the king who would bring maybe an end to war and the suffering and injustice. They were hoping to find the king who would bring everlasting love and joy and possibly peace to the world. They had hope. Historians suggest that it took over two years for these guys to find Jesus. They may not have fully understood what it pointed to, but God was guiding them in a special way, and they were incredibly curious to find out where it was leading. They eventually found hope in God's guidance. During an interview before his death on November 29th, 2001, he was fighting a long battle with cancer. Some of you will know George Harrison of the Beatles. He was interviewed by Rolling Stone magazine about the important issues in his life. And this is what he said, very profound. Because if you know anything about Harrison, he was always searching for 
something. And he said, everything else in life can wait, but the search for God cannot wait. And that's so true. The search for God is, I believe, the most important one, that each, most important issue that each one of us will face in our lives. But how can we know what is true, right? How can we know what is false? You ever Google, <laughs> or search Google for information? Of course you have. Type God into the search engine. I did this this week. This is what I got. That's the number on screen in less than a second. Finding God was more with a little longer time. And so here we have, this is where we find ourselves in a world of conflicting voices, both political and religious. Where do we start looking? I want to go back to the wise guys here. Why? Because these men found their hope in God's word. They didn't discover the answers to the questions until they actually began to consult the scriptures. Scriptures that they were familiar with but possibly didn't know. They asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod didn't seem to know and he asked his chief priests and he asked the teachers of the law, you know, where is the Messiah? So Herod doesn't even know his own scriptures. And the Magi's, they must have read from the prophets. They must have read Micah. They found their answer in Bethlehem, in the land of Judea. They found Jesus because they searched for answers in the scriptures, in God's words, in the writings of the Old Testament. And like Herod, we, we may have a general idea of where Jesus may be found, but until we become more like the Magi, we begin to consult the scriptures, we'll never find the Jesus of the Bible and the promise of hope that he brings. The takeaway for us today is that we need to be in our scriptures. And I say this because the Bible is God's guidebook for life. Just as we wouldn't learn to drive without consulting a driver's manual, we need to know the rules of the road. Although some folks obviously can't read Manitoba highways. Sorry, that's an inside voice. But the point of this is that we will make a mess of our lives, our Christian lives, if we fail to consult God's word. We are so quick to base things on our emotions. We are so quick to base things on YouTube and Facebook and whatever else anybody else throws at us. But we fail going to the scriptures and analyzing. Sorry, that's a pet peeve. You know why we don't? Because it's painful. It's painful to do so because it challenges us. It challenges us. It challenges our values. It challenges our morals. It challenges our ethics. But it also brings us life in all its fullness as we find ourselves being nourished and strengthened by the truth of the word. You know, a formal knowledge of the Bible doesn't lead us to knowing who Jesus is. It didn't for Herod, it didn't for his attendants, and it won't for us. Somebody once said, it doesn't matter how many times you've read through the Bible, but how many times the Bible has been through you. So are you going to the scriptures? Are you searching through the word for the answers to your questions? It was interesting. I, I was asked by Pastor Andrew, and you can remember Andrew and Brianne, uh, in your prayers, Brianne's father passed away this week. Uh, funeral's tomorrow. But just keep uh, the Davison clan and uh, Brianne's family in mind. But I was asked to um, answer some questions from our youth on video. Trevor Newfelt and I took up the challenge. and I love Trevor. I know he's here today, so wherever you are, buddy. So uh, I think we have a chemistry on, on camera. But the, the nature of the questions that our, our youth asks is so deep. It's deep. And honestly, these are questions that we can't answer in two minutes of videotape. And so I know I found myself going to Scripture saying, look, here are pieces of Scripture. My only hope for those of you youth who have been watching this is that you would take the time and go home and research. That you would watch the, the, the sermons I told you to go and watch so that you can make a deep and value-based decision. That's called homework. 
That's how we grow in our spiritual walk. That's how we grow in our spiritual lives. Right? Allowing the Bible to read us. After interviewing the Magi, Herod said he sent them to Bethlehem. So interesting. Again, the Magi won't go to Jerusalem. They didn't know about Bethlehem until Herod and his boys sent him to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And a snake. The snake is my addition. So off they went, continuing the journey. And the wise men, they, they found hope in Jesus. They found hope in God's guidance in that process. They found hope in the word. And now they find hope in worshiping Jesus. I find it amazing that these individuals were willing to travel thousands of miles to worship a king that wasn't even their own. But it was the fulfillment of a personal quest, a, a pilgrimage for truth, a journey that would change their lives. It had to have changed their lives forever. It would have to, two years of their life to look for this guy. It would have to have changed them. And I wonder if their hope turned to faith. Because faith and hope are so closely tied together. If you don't have hope, you don't have faith. Our definition of hope and faith is found in Hebrews 11, chapter 1. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so hope is not an attitude or a state of mind to get into. Our hope is Jesus Christ who doesn't change his policy. He keeps his promises. He offers us hope in himself. And God prepares a way before us. But in reality, God prepares hearts and minds and spirits. And to fully know the hope given us, to know the hope given us, we open up our hearts to Jesus. And in spite of all the circumstances surrounding us, God is offering you and I hope. And he is making a way, but we need to be aware so that we don't miss it. Somebody once wrote, totally without hope, one cannot live. To live without hope is to cease to live. And that's so true. Take hope out of somebody's life. And in, in the difficult and often confusing world in which we live, hope for many people, when you think about it, is something that seems to be in a short supply. In fact, I'd even go so far to say that in a world of pain and grief and sorrow and bereavement, of complex family relationships, of problems at work, alongside many other hardships of life, hope for many people has simply died a death. Look at our culture walking around. Where's the hope? And yet God offers us hope. It's not a mindset or an attitude to get into. He offers himself. He says, give your life to me, I'll give you hope, and in turn, faith. He'll go ahead of us. He'll prepare the way. He prepares our hearts. He prepares our minds, our spirits. And no matter what our circumstances are, even if you, what you see doesn't make sense, God is acting on our behalf. Hope, I believe, is one of the most important gifts that God gives to us. And nothing, nothing brings hope back to life like the Christmas story, like the journey of the Magi. And unlike the Magi, however, we don't have to travel thousands of miles to find Jesus. We can just find him right where we are. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over their place where the child was. When they saw the star... I love this passage. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Think about that for a moment. They arrive. The, the star supernaturally leads them to the house where Jesus was. We're going to presume, again, presume he was about two. Before they ever even entered the home. Before they ever saw Jesus. They realized that the star had stopped and they found the house. And what does the scripture say? They rejoiced. Now the Greek here ran out of words to describe their joy. 
This is why I love this. It repeats itself over and over. It's, it's almost as if we would literally translate it into English or to read. Kind of like, and they felt joy, and it was the most joyous, joyful joy of the most joyful, joyful kind. All right? They were probably dancing a jig in the streets. This is the joy that they had. A tremendous joy saying, we found him, we found him, we found him. Get the gifts. This is what took place. Stop. This is it. They party. Why? Their journey. They find him and going into the house. So, okay, so they have the celebration ahead. Now they're going into the house. They saw the child with Mary's mother. They fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. <laughs> Even before they gave the gifts, they fell down to worship him. They fell prostrate. They lay down before him in complete joy. They worship him. And then they give him some of the most expensive and adorning gifts that I'm sure Mary and Joseph, as poor as they were, ever received. In this moment, even these gifts are foretold by the prophet Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise above you, and on his glory will be seen upon you. The nation shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes around, and they will gather together. They come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news in the praises of the Lord. So here you got this tradition that tells us that three wise men because of three gifts, right? The traditional names of the Magi are Belshazzar, who is to supposedly originate from Arabia, Melchior from Persia, Gaspar from India. Whether or not these are true or not, it's just tradition. The three gifts offered, though, had spiritual meaning. They weren't just random things. Gold was a symbol of kingship on earth. Incense was a symbol of divinity, about being God. That was the frankincense. And myrrh was an embalming oil, a symbol of death. Did they know more than we did? And then our time ends. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And this lie is the central part of the origin of the story of King Jesus. Again, it's a peculiar story. It's a humble story. It's not an expected one, but much of it is very unexpected. And I firmly believe that, and perhaps more than ever, that we need to absorb what this story is saying to us. So let me go back to the beginning of the life lesson. You hear a rumor that Jesus shows up in Canada, and you want to go and find him. Where would your hope arrive who would be found announcing his coming and being amongst his first followers do you see the difference of a jesus born in jerusalem versus a jesus being born in bethlehem that the message of the manger versus the message of the throne the message of the humiliating crown of thorns versus the glorious crown of gold. I personally want the Bethlehem Jesus. I want the crucified Lord of glory. And thankfully, this is his story that he desires to be ours. Secondly, these magi were not expected, the expected target audience of this new king of the Jews. You think about it. They weren't from Israel. There's no connection to Abraham's physical family. They had no claim in Israel's story. And according to popular understanding, they didn't even belong face down before this Jewish king. But that's where we find them. And so there's something wrong with this picture, but there's also something that's beautifully right. That once again, it's, it's a hard message for us. Jesus was missed by almost all who were looking for him. Almost all who were trying to exert their authority. And, and, and he was found by those you would never expect to find him. 
The Jews had the scriptures right in front of them. They lived in the very area. They missed them completely. It took these guys from who knows how far away to come and show them. And you know the kinds of people that actually responded to Jesus in mastering his ministry? Who was it? It was the poor. It was the physically disabled. It was the sick. It was the other foreigners and surrounding nations, people from Roman cities. It was wicked people who were hated by most. It was women in those days who were very much sidelined in the ancient culture and disregarded as much less than their male counterparts. It was a bunch of regular old rough and rowdy fishermen. Interesting, and it blows my mind. It wasn't the Bible scholars, the Bible teachers, the religious authorities, and it wasn't the powerful. Because all those were teaching something different. And the theme here is Jesus was born in an unexpected place, worshipped by unexpected Peter, people shattering all the expectations that we would have of, of this first grand entrance and the response of the Son of God to this world. It makes no sense. You know, if Jesus was born in Canada, being the center... I wonder if you would find them in the streets of Winnipeg. Start in the center, right? Makes sense. Sorry if you're from Ontario. Toronto's not the center of Canada. But I could see him caring for the homeless and others. That would be hard to find. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. That he'd be ministering to the unexpected person and and that unexpected person would respond to his ministry. I'm not sure that he'd be calling the news crews to come and to televise his teachings. To make sure that they get him up on YouTube immediately. But his whole ministry was marked by a quiet love and a care for people. And only scarcely from time to time did he go toe-to-toe -to -toe with religious authorities. And I come back to the incredible expense of the Magi's journey. If you're a believer here this morning, what has your love of Christ actually cost you of recent? I, I believe faith is expensive. And I'm not talking about your money. Oh, clearly, the Magi gave a lot of their money to Jesus. And they spent a lot of their money on a pilgrimage to meet him. But let me ask you, what does faith cost you? What have you sacrificed for him? As believers, we worship a Savior who suffered on a cross. Loving God and loving our neighbor in the name of Jesus should be very expensive and costly. It demands our time. It demands our money to help and to serve others. And more importantly, it demands all of us, all of you, all of me. And really, that's the message of the first advent. And this is where we end. My prayer for all of you this morning is that each of us would find hope in God's guidance. That we would find hope in God's word. And finally that you would find hope in Jesus. In this year. And the years coming. We're about to move forward to the communion table this morning. And I want to take a moment to remind us all. That we have to integrate communion. The Lord's Supper. The Eucharist. Into our church life. So it enhances and encourages an authentic and genuine walk with God. If you haven't received a, a cup, we have them at the back. Just uh, please get up and help yourself. You may want to just take a moment and start peeling back the top layer to get access to the wafer. We need these special times together as believers. We had communion last night with our life group. We had it in a different way. 
I think it was the first time we've ever done it where um, those who were able to attend came, sat around the table. We literally sat around the table, had a meal together. It was fabulous. I can't speak for the rest of you, but I had a blast. And it was meaningful. And it was deep. And I said, and Sharon said the same thing. It was, it was me. And I said to her, it was communion. I said, this is how the early church would start it. And this is how they would finish it, what we're about to do together. We need these times as believers, special times to remember to celebrate Jesus' death and victory in our public gatherings. That's why we do it together. I want to remind you that communion affirms God's commitment to our deliverance. That's hope. If you're lacking in hope, remember the cross. This is a covenant of deliverance. It brings awe to the communion service. It gives us this hope. And just as people never forget a, a physical deliverance, this act, act helps us grasp the divine deliverance provided in Jesus. What we are eating and what we are drinking was death to Jesus when you look at the scriptures. But it's life to us. Communion offers an op opportunity for us to do a heart check. And I think we all need times of reflection to recalibrate our hearts to heavenly coordinates. Communion is, is an opportunity for us to do that. Not to be judgmental of others, but to acknowledge that we are imperfect beings, right? Walking together through an imperfect world, helping each other to get to higher ground. That's what I loved about our baptism with Nathan and Carson, two young men holding each other accountable in their walk of faith. It's a celebration of joy. The early church was marked by joy and generosity. They were loved by those outside, and what they did was a magnet to those who didn't know Jesus. Communion is a, a statement of our unity. It's sort of like the great level, or we, we're all together at the foot of the cross. We all, all of us in this room today, we need grace. All drinking deeply of the love of God, because that's what we all need every day. We are all equally flawed, but gladly resting in his warm embrace. And communion is the anticipation of the victory to come. Remember Jesus, you know, we do it until he returns. This groaning that we live in today is temporary. Victory is assured because in his death he destroyed him who had the power over death. And communion is a reminder of our new life in Christ. The, the week to come can be an adventure because his resurrection life is lived out in our lives. It's interesting what Jesus said before the crucifixion. He said, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. He broke it in pieces. He gave it to the disciples saying, take, eat, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine. He gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them. He said, each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of uh, to forgive the sins of many. But mark my words, I will not drink the wine again until the day I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. The disciples, this is what they did after the resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. It was just ingrained in their life. And it brought hope. Each of us have our bread and our wine. Before we participate together, let's join the worship team in this song. Thank you. 
God, we come into this quiet place, so surround us and hold us. Be in our hearts and minds as we enter in this time of communion with you and with each other. God, we often fall short of the mark, and then again, you never said this path was an easy one, and so we carry such heavy baggage with us. We ask that you would help us leave behind the things we don't need. So I ask that you'd help us carry the things that we can't give up yet. We know that someday we'll come to you free of all things that hold us back or drag us down. But until then, just walk with us, God. And we give these things to you. Luke chapter 22, the day of unleavened bread came, the day the Passover lamb was butchered. And Jesus sent Peter and John off saying, go prepare the Passover for us so that we can eat it together. He said, where do you want us to do this? He said, keep your eyes open as you enter the city. A man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him home. Then speak with the owner of the house. The teacher wants to know, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He'll show you a spacious second-story room, swept and ready, so prepare the meal there. They left, they found everything just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was time, he sat down, all the apostles with him. He says, you have no idea how much I have looked forward to eating this Passover meal with you before I enter my time of suffering. It's the last one I'll eat until we all eat together in the kingdom of God. Taking the cup, he blessed it. He then said, take this, pass it among you. As for me, I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God arrives. Taking the bread, he blessed it. He broke it and he gave to them saying, this is my body given for you. Eat it in my memory. So take the bread. This is the body of Christ that is broken for you. Let's take it together. He did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant written in my blood, blood poured out for you. As we take the wine and take it together, we be reminded that this is the blood of Christ that is shed for you. Will you stand with me, please? Can we sing the chorus once again?
So I will rise and lift my hand, for by His mercy my life was spared. The highest name has set me free, because of Jesus my heart is So I will rise. So I will rise and lift my head, for by His mercy my life was spared. The highest name has set me free, because of Jesus my heart is clean. Because of Jesus, my heart is clean. God, we ask you now in this place to meet us with your love, with your grace, and with your healing. Touch the places that are filled with dark, God. Shine in your light. In the places where we feel like slaves bring liberation. In the places of despair, God, I pray this morning that you have brought hope. And in our brokenness, we cling to Christ's body that was broken and the blood that was poured so that we could ask you that in our own brokenness and being poured out that you would meet us and heal us in Jesus' name. Soul Sanctuary. In the ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. My brothers and sisters, hope. When you're confronted with your own inadequacy, inadequacy, may you be reminded that Jesus is enough. When you're confronted with your own weaknesses, may you find strength in Jesus. When you're confronted with your past in all the ways that you are not good enough, may you be confronted with your present and your future in all the ways that Jesus says you're good enough. And when you're confronted with despair, may you have hope in Jesus. May you truly come to see that in Jesus Christ, that you are a new creation and a new hope. And peace be with you now, and go and live the church, and we'll see you next week. Amen.